filled with teaching, truths and issues that matter. Bernie Diamond's A Different Perspective, part of Night Vision each weeknight. Details at vision.org.au. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. G'day and welcome to today's 2020 podcast. I'm Matt Gies and you can hear the full program of 2020 every weekday just after the news in the West from 8, in Queensland from 10 and in the Eastern Daylight Saving States from 11. Today's podcast, we're talking about new developments in biomedical science that often create a moral minefield when it comes to what is right and wrong. Today, we're looking at the use of animal organs to treat human conditions and the development of human-animal hybrid organs. Last week, we spoke with bioethicist Professor Nicholas Tonti-Filippini, who has just released Volume 3 of a six-volume series called About Bioethics. Well, he's back again today, and he approaches this issue from a Christian faith perspective, today discussing the issue of animal-human transgenesis. He's chatting to Neil Johnson. Nicholas, last time we were talking, there were some scary scenarios that we talked about when it comes to these ethical issues of when you die. And uh, we talked also about organ transplants and when those organs can be taken from a body and when the body is actually officially brain dead. I wanted to talk to you today about the idea of animal organs being transplanted into humans and uh, the human-animal transgenesis. Yes, we, we, we've, for a long time we've accepted the use of, um, of animals um, in, in human circumstances. Like we, we, for a long time we used... Um, animal insulins in, uh, for treating people with diabetes. We've also used uh, pig valves um, to, to treat uh, people who have problems with their heart valves and so on. So we've used animal parts for a long time, but they, those were parts where we had treated them so they were no longer, they no longer had animal cells in them. They, the structure was there but without the cells so that, that the body didn't reject them. And normally, if you just put an animal organ into a human being, it would be rejected. What they're doing and what they're experimenting with now is in order to get animal organs that could be used in humans is to take the embryo of, uh, of an animal, um, a pig usually, because the pig, pig organs are fairly close to the size of human organs, take a pig um, as an embryo and change its genes. So remove some of the animal genes, the pig genes, and put in some human genes in order to form a, a human-animal hybrid, so a pig human hybrid um, in an embryo, develop that embryo, so have it transferred to, the, to a, a mother pig, so to speak, uh, have it developed and, and grow up to be an adult pig. And then as an adult, because the, the cells had been changed, the genes had been changed, the thought is that we'd be able to take a, a heart or a lung or a liver from that pig and put it into a human being and have it not rejected by the human being because you, you, you've altered the genetic structure so that it, it is already part human. So, Nicholas, as a Christian, is it a right thing to use animal uh, organs in human transplants, or is that a wrong thing? I, I've not seen any of the churches yet address this issue of, of, of uh, human, what's called human-animal transgenesis, um, forming a human-animal hybrid by altering the genes. Um, my own view is that, that we're crossing a line here. Um, we have a clear distinction between human beings and animals. 
and we, we you know we, we can use we use animals for our own purposes we can slaughter them and eat them and so on we could use their organs if we wanted to um, uh, whereas we wouldn't be able to do that to human beings but if you have a, a creature that's part human and part animal um, then we're not quite sure what status it would have at this stage the changes they're talking about are fairly minor changes not as though uh, a pig's going to stand up and demand the keys of the car or anything like that or talk to you um, these will be pigs. They'll, they'll sound and look like pigs because the changes are, are fairly minor. But, but conceptually, we've, we've, we've broken this, this barrier, so to speak. We've, we've moved into creating a being that is at least part human. And you have to ask, how many genes could you change before you would have to start treating this creature as a human being? Um, and if you look at it in terms of, of its functions and capacities, well, when a, um, a human being is born with severe disabilities um, and, if you like, lower abilities than, say, an animal, um, we still regard that human being as a human being and as a member of the human family with a full set of rights. So when we cross this barrier and uh, start forming a being that is part human and part animal, uh, we can't make that decision just on its capacities. We have to say, well, what have we created here? And my view is that once we start putting parts of the human genome into an animal, then we have to start giving that animal the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't surprise me that churches haven't all come to positions on these things. Obviously, they're very complicated issues. And uh, certainly, uh, I'd honour your gifting when it comes to this area. There must be secular ethicists who are looking at your writings on bioethics. What sort of response do you get from them when you come with a Christian response as to how we ought to react to these changes? Well, my, my work on, on brain death has been published in the secular journals, so it's been, and I've written in such a way as to, to argue a case that's not a religious case, um, and that's been accepted um, uh, on the strength of the, the philosophical arguments involved in it. Um, when it comes to something like human-animal transgenesis, it's a little more complicated because um, the reservations are much more clearly religious. Um, the reservations from, from a secular point of view are, are not quite as strong. Um, because in a, in a religious context, we have a very strong sense of being made in the image and likeness of God. We have this strong idea that human beings are different, that we stand out um, in terms of our relationship to God. Um, uh, as Christians, we believe that God became man and, and so on. And in that context, we have a very strong sense of what it is to be a human being and to being very close to God in who we are um, and being called to be in communion with God, um, whereas we don't see that necessarily with animals. But... But from a secular point of view, none of that applies. Um, and so the very strong reasons why we would have reservations about human-animal transgenesis as, um, as religious people may not be shared by, by secular philosophers. Nicholas, the value of holding a, a very dogmatic stance when it comes to the, the sanctity of human life and protecting these things that we've been talking about, what do you say to people who say, well, you know, I'm not sure really whether this matters. What's the value that we ought to be holding tightly to? I, I guess when I approach these things, I, um, I, when I speak to people, nobody... Um, exists in a cultural vacuum. Everybody comes from a, has a cultural background. Um, so when I chaired a government committee, um, I asked people to talk about that background. I asked them to talk about what their parents believed um, so that we all uh, had some sense of where we came from and, and what our culture was. Because otherwise, 
our language would make no sense. Our, our language is embedded in the culture we came from. Um, so when we use words like ought and should and must and good and bad and so on, we're using this, this whole baggage that we come, come to the, the discussion with um, of what our culture says those things mean. Um, so I, I, I try to get people to acknowledge their cultural background and to be comfortable with that cultural background. And then we've got something in common um, because we all have these backgrounds. And, uh, you know, even if, if, you know, somebody has become an atheist or something like that, um, the language they're using, the, the, the concepts that they're using will, will generally have a religious background. Um, so it's, we've got something in common then. Um, the other thing, I guess, is that, is that to try and get people to focus on, on not what's the minimal standard, but, but on what's ideal. Well, I chaired a committee on the unresponsive state. And what I, what I wanted to see was a set of guidelines that said, what's the best way? Not what can we get away with, but what's the best way of caring for people in an unresponsive state? When I was involved in organ transplantation, I wanted them to say, what's the best way of caring for people who have died? Um, what's the best way of, of caring for people who are going to be living donors? Um, and so on. So that you look for the ideal and and um, there is an appeal that we, we to, to something then that we all have in common. Um, so I, I don't find that there is necessarily a huge uh, divide between a religious person and a secular view, um, as long as we're trying to do that, as long as we're trying to look what, look for what's best, rather than just simply trying to get away with minimal standards. Of course, the big risk is that there's a slippery slope and one thing leads to another. And as you say, uh, people gravitate towards the minimal standard, whereas uh, somehow or other we've got to be able to say uh, the reason why we take the high standard is because uh, we are made in God's image. Yeah, and we can point to where, where people got lost sight of that. We can point to the atrocities that have happened in the past. Um, so that uh, and we we can we can point to in in all sorts of areas. I mean, people want to point to the Nazi era, but the Nazi era wasn't in isolation. There was a whole rise of of eugenics in the early uh, early 20th century, um, well prior to the Nazi era, uh, when when people in Western countries generally were taking a much more exploitative attitude towards human beings, and we saw that um, come to such disasters. Um, that, that then spawned the international human rights movement. So we saw, post the Second World War, we saw the development of human rights, and that was a good thing because the idea of human rights is the idea that every member of the human family has inherent dignity. And that's the concept that I try to hold on to, the, the idea that, that no matter how disabled a human being is, every member of the human family is equal, every member of the human family has inherent rights. Um, and, in, and um, inalienable rights. They can't be given away and they can't be sold. Um, so that there's this notion of a, of, a, of a protection of the human person that governments should respect um, and that all societies should respect. And I think we can, we can hold that in common with all sorts of people. We don't, that's not, not exclusively a, a religious view, although the religious view about the sanctity of human life and of the, the dignity of the human person made in the image and likeness of God obviously gives that a much stronger focus. And Nicholas, an important point here, a lot of us when we think of doing some Bible study or studies in theology, uh, we're often thinking fairly shallowly in the way that we think about that. Uh, for someone to go as deep as you have, and you're just about to, uh, you know, you've released volume three of a six-volume set on bioethics, is this something that I guess you're encouraging 
students of Scripture, uh, people who are interested in studying theology and going deeper, you'd be encouraging them to a, a, a science like bioethics because it really does engage with the culture and uh, it, it is really where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? That's right. I mean, we do have to be prepared to talk to the culture. We've got to work with our culture. Um, we need to, to, be, to be part of the culture, even if we, we hold different views on religious grounds. We still need to be able to work with the law, with public policy, uh, with what happens in ethics. And we need to be able to, to enter into a dialogue. I, I try to teach my, my students what I call a constructive approach to ethics. That is that you, you work with people, you listen to people to start with, you listen to what their values are, um, and you try to to find common values, that, that those things that you hold in common where you respect human beings and so on. So work from, from what's good in the other position so that when I, when I um, give an account um, of alternative positions like a utilitarian position or a, an autonomy view within ethics, um, I try to, to show to my students what's good about that view um, rather than necessarily what's wrong with that view. Um, so you can work from the positives, work from the strengths of, of, of alternative views to something much better. So you can work through an ethics committee, you can work you can work to transcend the views of the people on the committee to develop something much stronger than any individual view. Well, Nicholas Tonti Filippini, uh, your book about bioethics, transplantation, biobanks and the human body, uh, volume three of a six-volume set. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you about these sorts of issues and uh, we'll perhaps get a, an opportunity to talk again sometime soon. Thanks for being with us today on 2020. Thank you. You're welcome. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.